Folly Coffee has a secret that we've been keeping. We are opening a cafe Monday, October 17th in collaboration with Jinx Tea at 4503 France Avenue. You've probably heard me say, we're a wholesale coffee roaster. I don't want to. But when an opportunity like this comes up, you have to jump on it. We're going to have House Bean, Classic Joe on Drip, two different single origin espressos available, cold brew, nitro cold brew, Jinx Tea on tap, and available hot or ice. And this is all happening Tomorrow. Hey, this is Rob. This is episode 132 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. This has been a long time coming. I've been, been a long here, time. <laughs> I'm here with Jake Hanneman, owner and founder of Bootlegger Kombucha among other things that we were just discussing before yeah. we walked in the room. But we're going to start with Bootlegger Kombucha. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. obviously we met uh, Phil Terra Cold Brewed Coffees. We started brewing and operating out of your facility uh, in Apple Valley. Yeah. And that was the first time I was introduced to Bootlegger. And immediately upon trying it, <laughs> I was like, this is legit. Because most kombuchas I try are either too sweet or too acidic. And then the ones that are really high acidity you go okay this has like little to no sugar in it so that's probably why it's too acidic then the ones that are maybe nice or on the sweeter side you're like this has so much sugar i might as well drink like a can of soda or something and then i look at yours and i go oh this is perfect like the balance is right in the middle but there's like little to no added sugar and i was so impressed so i'm excited to hear how you got into it in the first place and what led you to this decision to start bootlegger yeah so um I guess where I should start is, you know, I had 20, 20 some years in, in corporate America with, you know, defense and, you know, engineering. Uh, and I got tired of corporate America. It's, <laughs> it's a tough role to put in that much of yourself um, for, for not much return. Um, so, you know, I, I made the naive jump to uh, like, I'm going to start my own thing. Uh, and my, my business partner, Current, current business partner with Bootlegger was like, well, you know, you should do kombucha because your kombucha is awesome. Uh, and I had not even given that a thought. Uh, I was thinking, like, what can I do with my degree? What can I do with my history? At no point did I think of starting a, a kombucha brewery. Um, so, you know, the uh, from there it was, you know, so I had brewed for, I'd been brewing for maybe seven, eight years at the time. And it's a family... Uh, it's on my sister-in-law's family side. It's been there for almost 50 years now. So I think that's where the, uh, the difference comes in. It's, it's a completely different culture than, than what's out there right now. So when you say you started brewing kombucha seven or eight years ago, because you, you said your business partner's like, oh, you should, your kombucha's awesome, as if like everybody's got a kombucha right. at home. So I'm curious, <laughs> when you say you were, had been brewing kombucha for seven or eight years, I've attempted it once. You know, yeah. get the kombucha kit. I made it at home. I started it. The SCOBY grew. I was like, oh, this is so cool. Let it sit. Turns out I probably let it sit for way too long. And it turns out I had a really expensive, basically five-gallon bucket of vinegar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so how did you uh, get connected with your sister-in-law and be like, I'm going to start making this for myself? You know, when uh, they're out in Colorado right now, which is where I am from, uh, and they had it, you know, she had it just sitting around in bottles that are they're total hippie bikers. Uh, so bicycle variety no, or no, no. the motorbike like Harley. Okay. You know, they've got like 15 bikes and you know, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a weird, uh, 
mix of, of hippie and biker <laughs> that I love. I'm all about that. Uh, so yeah, she had it, you know, they had it in the fridge for, and had it for years. So I'm like, you know what? I, this doesn't seem like it's too hard to make. And she was like, yeah, I'll give you a SCOBY. You just, you know, try it out. That was the start of it. And, uh, yeah, that it went from, you know, brewing a gallon at a time to, then I had a full pantry of, of jugs and I was, you know, I think at one at the at the worst point, I had a bathroom downstairs. It was no longer a bathroom. It was when I started, you know, when I started to. So I was a thirty-gallon fermenter. When you first tried kombucha, did you know what it was? Because I remember, no. yeah, and same here. Because the first no. time I tried it, somebody was like, "It's kind of like it's almost it's it's almost like vinegar tasting, but in a good way." And I'm like, "That doesn't sound good." Yeah, it it had never tasted. I I only had bad kombucha when I started trying other kombucha i'm like what well, this isn't the same thing as our you know it's yeah. a completely different drink so I, I you know we had ours we had the fortunate uh event of being able to do a genetic study with through kombucha brewers international with a hundred other national brewers and all results were anonymous you know the other 99 were anonymous and you saw yours and how your culture compared and I was surprised, but not really that surprised to find out that we had a, a very different culture uh, than the other 100 brewers that we went went up, uh, you know, compared to, I guess. So explain a SCOBY, because that's the other side of kombucha. You drink it and you go, oh, I like this. It, yeah. Oh, and it's good for you. It's a much better alternative than drinking like sodas or other drinks. And then you... I, you learn about the SCOBY and you see it and you're like, this is... This looks like a giant piece of flesh. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. it feels like it too. Yeah. It's, uh, the SCOBY is, is like the... It's the hotel. It's the community of all the different bacteria and yeasts. So, um, you know, old fermenters or, you know, beer brewers used to have like a wooden stir stick or, you know, something that carried the yeast and it passed it along. That That's the old style of, of brewing. The SCOBY is just a self-contained community. So it's got, you know, four to five main yeasts and four to five main bacteria. Um, I think the reason some of the other brews get vinegary is because they're really heavy on acetobacter, which makes vinegar as we know it. But there's other, you know, other uh, bacteria in there that give it, and yeasts that give it a roundness of flavor. Um, so that's why ours kind of tastes sweet without being having additional sugar. And so when you're saying it's different than those other 99, it's that balance of like the different yeast profiles, the different bacteria, yeah. and probably has something to do with the fact that this SCOBY was kind of a family. It reminds me a lot of sourdough. You, you, there yeah. are certain families, like the FEMAs, they have mother dough, their bakery, yep. and that is a, a sourdough yeast that's been passed down for yep. generations versus I imagine... This space especially. I mean, this is a booming category. Right. So I'm sure there are lots of people on the business side of it that are like, oh, okay, this, I tried a kombucha. I heard about kombucha. There's a major business opportunity here. How do you make it? And then they right. just go ahead and find the simplest way to create a SCOBY and then start producing kombucha. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's what I'm assuming is that, you know, because this wasn't a widespread thing until, you know, 2013, yeah. 14, I think is when it's really started booming on the west coast uh, and that's when everyone thought oh we can you know we can get into this space um but yeah i think uh so i i, I have a feeling that 
most of the other uh, stuff is based off the same culture. Yeah. So, I am I am I cutting out? Just a little closer to your face and you'll be good. They're super. Oh, it's got hi. this like noise blocker yeah. thing, so it cuts out background noise. But you really have to have it close to your face. And I'm for fidgeting it to work. around over here too. So no, I'm like it's all good. <laughs> so you start making it yourself yeah. just to have for like seven or eight years, and send, and then your business partner goes, "You should start making this. this as a business." Yeah. This is a unique category. It, it's it's almost similar to you hear of like fermented foods, beverages in general that are non-alcoholic, yeah. especially kombucha because they're kombucha because they're very trace trace amounts of alcohol. Right. That this before hearing your story, I have to imagine is a pretty difficult thing to start and to be able to explain to the health department, yes. to the Department of Agriculture, what is it we're doing, especially when you see it. If you've never seen a kombucha SCOBY before, you're probably looking at that going, there's no way I could certify this. I have no idea what I'm looking at. Yeah, I, you know, we started, uh, you know, fortunately the Department of Ag and we were organic certified through MCIA. Um, they were pretty flexible in how you know because there just wasn't a whole lot out there for regulatory you know requirements other than the you know half a percent alcohol you know under half percent alcohol um so without it took a bit of convincing and and uh statistics basically to you know i, I did some some testing and it just you know helped them with the science behind the you know as the ph goes down the alcohol also goes down so I, over some testing, I, I was able to convince him that, hey, if my pH is here, alcohol's got to be here because, you know, it's just the nature of the fermentation. So it was, I was fortunate that they were able to, they were willing to work with me on that because not a lot of places would, would do that. So that's always been surprising to me because when you think of the Department of, <clears throat> Department of Health, Department yeah. of Agriculture, you're going, they're going to know everything about this. And I'll probably learn some things that like yeah. I didn't know I need to be doing. And then with especially newer categories, you realize, well, of course it makes sense that I would know more about this specific product because right. I'm the one making it. Yeah, and the only thing out here at the time were small, like Prohibition was had started out here, Dean's, uh, uh, and I don't, I don't know if Prohibition is still rolling or not, but Dean's is still out here and he's been doing it in, in a small space for, uh, for years too. So, but other than that, there wasn't anything out here, um, so it was all new for for all the regulatory folks as well. So, but that was kind of a, that was a good thing because we didn't have to deal with preconceived, you know, regulations mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So, so going from making it at home for yourself to yeah. going to a commercial scale, uh, commercial scale, what were the steps that you took when you decided, let's do this as a business to, I, I want to take this to a commercial scale. And did, how, what were the kind of resources you lean towards? Because I know being in the beer industry that there's a lot of home brewers that go, I'm a great home brewer. I'm going to start a commercial yeah. brewery. They start it and then it fails because it's a wildly different thing to produce in five gallon batches right. versus 900 gallon batches. Right. That, you know, looking back on this, uh, if I knew then what I know now, I don't know if I would have started, <laughs> you know, it was one of those things I just went in just completely naive, not knowing anything about, you know, I went for, I was in defense engineering and aerospace had nothing to do with, you know, consumer, uh, processed goods, packaged goods, or, you know, any, any of the CPG, any of the distribution, any of the brewing, large scale brewing and jumped right into it. And, uh, with an absent partner basically. <laughs> and so there were no, and even on a national level, there were not resources 
and you know the resources that were out there were very private you know they weren't yeah. they weren't telling you how to scale things or so it was a big it was a learning experience but uh you know i think uh it was it, it was interesting it's uh it was a challenge um i was super naive going into it and uh but it's that i think every small business owner has to go through that trial by fire yeah, so there's kind of, looking at it, there seems to be kind of two sides of the difficulty of starting a business, especially in CPG. There's the actual production side, yeah. which for something like kombucha is going to be more difficult than other categories, especially locally, because you're going, there's maybe one or two other people that I could connect with on how they're producing. And then, yeah, you know, a lot of people, when they start something, they go, these are my secrets. I don't want to give away right. my secrets to how I'm producing something. And then there's the business side. And I've talked about this on this podcast before that everybody who's starting a food business seems to be somewhere on this range of, I only care about the thing I'm making. That's my pure focus. And anything business related is a hassle, but it's a necessity. Right. And then you get people like I referenced earlier in the kombucha space where they're pure business and they go, we just need to have a product. We just need a product in yeah. this category because I can do the business side. And it usually ends up being the people that are somewhere in the middle, especially on like a, a local and regional scale that seem to have the most traction long term because they have the balance needed. But I'm curious on the production side, how you set up your facility, because obviously I'm very familiar with it yeah. being Filterra operated out of it. But I'm curious the first steps you take because is, can I go on Google and look up equipment for kombucha no, brewing? <laughs> now. You might be able to now, but yeah, back then there point. was nothing. So I, I, uh, I kind of, you know, it's a different ferment than beer in that you want more uh, surface area for the kombucha to, you know, does do its oxygen transfer and all the science shit stuff. Uh, <laughs> Doesn't matter. So, okay. <laughs> Much worse has been said. Okay. Uh, it's, it's, I should know that. Uh, so... I just, uh, you know, I knew the dimensions that I wanted. I went to a, a stainless steel producer, a dairy tank producer in Wisconsin and said, hey, I want this type of tank. Can you build it? Uh, they said, no, we can't. You know, I wanted a round tank. They didn't have the ability to roll, you know, make cylinders. So we went with a square tank. So I've got six foot. I got the uh, the devil's fermenters, six foot <laughs> by six foot <laughs> by six foot. So they're just big cubes. Uh, and... Uh, you know, learned how to do it on those. And then, like you said, you know, it was, uh, it performs differently. You know, I was doing larger batches, you know, 30 gallon batches, but going from 30 gallons to 600 batches or 600 gallons, completely different animal. Uh, so there were some learns through the first few years. And then I, you know, uh, so after I, you know, after I learned with those tanks, uh, I ordered, you know, four more and then got a, our, our newest tank, I guess it's a few years old now, is a 1200 gallon tank. And, and uh, that's been a good, you know, that, that one is my favorite. So I would replicate that one on a smaller level for my other ones. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Did I answer that question? Yeah. I feel yeah. like I'm rambling. No, no, no. That's really what it is, <laughs> is uh, it, it, when you're in a category that there isn't just like equipment, like so coffee roasting, obviously yeah. you could just go to any coffee roaster manufacturer if you're looking to purchase one or find a facility like we did that has coffee roasters and go, can we, this is simple. Like right. coffee roasters, a well-established thing, but in a category like this, that's relatively new to the United States and especially new in the Midwest, you're going to reach out to people and they go, I don't even know what you're trying to ask me that you're trying to right. create. 
And so it's almost like you have to take it down to the bare bones of like, what is it that we need? Well, it's a steel vessel. Okay, who makes steel vessels? Well, yeah. milk manufacturers right. make steel vessels. So can you make one of this shape? No. Would this shape work? And I think that's kind of what I was getting at is how to find yeah. the equipment to start. And so you get the uh, initial 600-gallon brewer. Uh, ended up being a cube shape instead of the circular shape, but you can make that work. And so you're able to kind of dial in this brewing method on this vessel. How soon after getting the equipment in and brewing did you have product in a bottle ready to go? So we started late in 2015 um, by just founding the, you know, started the company, created the LLC uh, in, in 2015, end of 2015, and then March 2016 was my first distribution drop off to co-op partners warehouse, which is a, you know, it's a co-op distributor. And how did you get connected with them? I, I think I just looked up distributors like, <laughs> or I, no, no, no. Here's, here's what it was. Uh, Valley natural foods in apple Valley mm -hmm. in Burnsville, apple Valley area. Uh, they were the first ones to bring us in. And Martha, who was there at the time was a huge help in getting us off the ground with that. She's like, Oh, I know the folks at co-op. This is where we get our, our, our products from. Here's a contact. Uh, and that's how it, that's how it really started. So Valley natural foods and then, and then working with, uh, the folks at, uh, co-op partners, uh, were just, you know, instrumental in getting our first, cause I had no idea what to, I mean, yeah, to like get, said, and you're to, with Valley natural foods, even that you're like, oh, no, they're the first one to bring us in. How did you get them to bring you in? I brought them product yeah. and said, Hey, you know, try this compared to the other stuff you have. Well, I, I want to go back. I want to go even more detail than that, because I think this is something that like now you're in like hundreds of stores and you're like, yeah, you know, we got in that store, but I'm trying to picture it through the lens of someone that's like, obviously like never started a business or someone that is like, how do you get into a store in the first place? And I'm more interested because like I had a sales background. So yeah. for me, it was like comfortable. I kind of knew what grocery stores were looking for. I kind of knew who I should be contacting. How should I ask the questions of who's the person I should be talking to? So I'm curious, you see Valley Natural Foods and you go, okay, so did you just load up some product and yeah. walk in the store? Yeah. And who did, did you talk to first? I'm just like, oh, hey, uh, you know, who brings in your, you, you know, can I talk to your grocery, your refrigerated manager? And then they're like, oh, yeah, we can, you know, they point you, you know, you just go down the chain yeah. the right person. Um, I, I really attribute it mostly to luck because uh, I'm just a big dumb animal. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like walking and stuff, and I'm nice, but, you know, that doesn't get you. That's that's, uh, you know, that doesn't get you in, in the store. So it was a lot of legwork at the beginning and a lot of lucky breaks. Um, and but even that simple question is such yeah. an important one because. It's a pretty common mistake that I think people go, well, the way you land new customers is you show up, you go to the customer service desk and you say, hey, can I leave some samples? And then they go, yeah, sure, we'll. Yeah, and then, and then they ignore it. And then maybe you get a name. Right. Like a good customer service would be, oh yeah, this, you know, I'll get this to so-and-so. They're yeah. the, in your case, the refrigerated buyer. I'll make sure they see these. And then, you know, most, it's like, do you have the, the, the price sheet? Do you have the UPC? Do you have all the product information on a one sheeter to go with the product or is it right. just the product? Cause if, if I'm a buyer at a, at a, like, let's just take Valley natural foods and all of a sudden this bottle shows up and I go, what is this? And I go, Oh, it's somebody that makes kombucha. Okay. Did they leave pricing they leave or contact information? Yeah. yeah. He wrote this stuff down on a note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are they going to follow up with me? Do they want me to reach out yeah. to them? So even just that question of like, who does your buying for that is it's the decision maker is right. really what you're looking for. Yeah. And, and it's difficult because 
you know, not every store is the same, not every chain is the same. And a lot of times you're working, even if you're in like multiple stores of the same chain, you might have to work individually with the individual store yeah. to get in. And you probably know this too. It's just yeah. like, it's so varied and how, how it's dealt with. And at the beginning I was so, I think, you know, a lot of it was like, oh, look, he's cute. He's trying to bring in his. Yeah, <laughs> which his should stuff. not be undervalued. Oh, if, you find, <laughs> if you find the right buyer, that'll go far. And I meant cute in the sense of like, oh, he's just, you know, he doesn't cute know what little, he's doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's a little lost deer. Yeah, <laughs> which at first, if you yeah, find the right buyer, they'll want to help right. you. I, I lean on that heavily sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time I go, I don't really know how this works. Right. Yep. So if you could fill me in, I'd appreciate yes. it. And there's, there's it does seem like there's a lot of people that do want to help local producers out there, which is cool. Yeah. Um, so, you know, between that and then I got hooked up with uh, Minnesota cup and I remember that getting a mentor there, you know, it's just, it's all been learning throughout the years. And then now I try and give, you know, I do have help or I have kombucha companies that want to start up will, that will come, come to me and say, Hey, would, would you mind talking to me about how, to do this. And, you know, I remember back on my days at the beginning and how it was difficult to, uh, to get anyone to help. And I'm like, yeah, come in, we'll talk about it. I'll show you how I do it. Knowing that it's difficult, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I do try and give them a dose of reality in that, you know, with CPG in, in particular, in particular, you've got to, you, you know, you've got to move a lot of product. So these folks that are like, oh, I'm going to do some kegs and sell them at the weekend at the farmer's market or try and get into a store. And, you know, I just try and give them a little bit of a dose of reality. I'm like, okay, do you, you know, you understand that your sell price might be, you know, on the shelves is going to be this, but really your take is going to be this tiny little bit here. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really common mistake I see, unfortunately, food producers get in that they start, they go, okay, so here are my costs. So if uh, to get this margin, I'm going to price it at this. Yeah. And that works, especially when you're selling at a farmer's market. If you're selling right. it at a farmer's market, it's direct to that customer, boom, no additional costs involved. You're right. taking that payment. Good, I'm making my margin, things are awesome. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I could sell online. It's a little more difficult with kombucha because right. of uh, you know sh uh, shelf stability and shipping with a liquid and everything. But let's say I've got a product like we do where I'm selling online. Okay, well now you need a box or an envelope to put that right. product in and then you've got shipping costs. Well, if I am selling online at the same price, that's not gonna work. Or we do free shipping, but just build the shipping into it. Right. Uh, or you can add shipping, but then it gets really difficult at retail. Right. Because even if you can still, if you're going to deliver directly, which is very labor intensive, yeah. they're going to go, okay, what's your promotional schedule? Right. <laughs> and you go, well, what do you mean? Well, what months of the year, what, you know, right. focus periods are you going to be on sale in store? Yeah. You go, well. What, what do you think I should be at? Yeah, <laughs> like which month? Well, okay, well, what we do is, and this is where it starts to get complicated. It's a store to store, retailer by retailer. Right. You know, some stores would be like, well, if you knock off 50 cents, we'll knock off 50 cents and it'll be a dollar off. Right. Some stores are like, your response, whatever you take off the price, that's what we'll take off at the end thing. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, shoot, I did not plan right. on being plan on, this. On, on, on an extra dollar being knocked off. Right. And then all of a sudden your blended margin between your full price, which was your minimum, right. and the sale price. And you start to realize why CPG at retail is. Difficult, it's difficult on a small scale. Yeah. 
Uh, and then obviously as you grow larger, there's more logistical complications. And so I think, I, I'm wondering if this has happened to you. People see you in like these major chains, hundreds of stores, and they're going, wow, you must be raking it. Right. <laughs> I think that is such a myth. I, it is so hard to, I mean, I've heard this on multiple, you know, I've, cause I've listened to the podcast, you yeah. know, every, every person that's on here, every company that starts as a small business must, you know, get the comment from everyone else. Like, oh man, you must, you own your own business. You must be rolling in it. Now, if I wanted to make money, I'd go back to do what I was doing. You know, I'd make, <laughs> make way more, I'd make way more, it, you know. It's interesting. It's almost like, like when you speak about the corporate world, I, I was fortunate to have a really shitty internship. I hated it yeah. so much. It was nine to five. It was unpaid, which is, yeah, I just, worse. I needed a resume builder. At the time right. I was like, I'm living at home with my parents, no expenses, training for football. I just need something on my right. resume. So I took the shitty internship and the, maybe the most valuable thing I learned is like, I could never just work a desk job. I, but you go, paychecks are nice and insurance, the nice. insurance <laughs> benefits are nice. fantastic. Yeah. And like your ability to grow in a stable way in an established company is you can kind of build out a career for yourself. But then there's this like existential stress of like, could I be doing something else? Yeah. But then you hop over to the business side and you go, oh, I'll be my own boss. You know, I'll be making all the money on this product instead of like maybe a commission or just playing a role in this product that's being sold. And then that stress is replaced with the opposite kind of right. stress. Like I'm doing what I'm passionate about, but now every but my boss is an asshole. <laughs> 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 and I, instead of having one boss, I've got hundreds of bosses. Yeah, I, you know, it's that is that is one thing that I say is, you know, yeah, I work for myself, but you know, I you drive yourself, you know. So I, you know, I'm working. You know, a twelve-hour day is a is a short day now, and you know it's, but it's a different feel than you know. I have control over that. Yeah. Um, I just had this thought yesterday. I was like, I don't work that much. Yeah. And then I was thinking yesterday. I was like, no, I guess I did start at like six, and I guess I was still working on stuff at like eight or nine. Right. And, you know, there's random stuff in the middle. Well, I had to go drop this off there. That's not really work. I'm just I had to go deliver right. this over here. And then you're like, oh no, I guess that was technically a twelve thirty. Yeah, you asked me. <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, it's not, it's not too bad of a work day. If you ask my family, they're like, yeah, you, you were gone from six until six or seven, and right. then, you know? So, but I really am trying to find a balance with that more. I think that's the, you know, that's where I'm at now is, uh, and as a result, I don't, you know, I have a different feel that is for bootlegger that is not too popular, uh, with, um, investors or other people in small business and that. I don't want to get huge. You know, I don't want to build. This is an interesting point because it's always <laughs> that question of what's your exit strategy? Okay. When are you going regional? When are you going national? Yeah. And I point to the craft beer industry all the time because I think it mirrors exactly what's happening in coffee. And quite frankly, a lot of beverage trends that you can kind of see this cyclical trend of a category explodes Investors are like, we want, yep, in. we want in, we will give you all. And obviously this is an oversimplification, but like, the money is more available, I should yeah. say, for people wanting to invest it based on the fact that we want to take this regional, national, we want to see that $100 million valuation as you as a national brand. And this happened in beer. And in craft beer, what happened is these established brands that were having tons of success locally and regionally, or maybe like on a statewide level, took on investors and said, we're immediately going to make a huge regional national push. The category cools down. Yeah. Guess what happens to a category two when it becomes more popular? 
everybody and their mother comes along and says, yep, we're going to start a brewery. So you enter these new markets and instead of two or three local competitors, there's 23. Right. And they all imploded, not all imploded, obviously, but a lot of really huge brands that were like the darlings of the industry, like Ballast Point sold for a billion (laughs) dollars. I think in under five years, they were resold for $3 million. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I always, you know, from the beginning, I had an idea of what I wanted to be, what I wanted bootlegger to be. And at the time I had the new Belgium, uh, new Belgium brewery in Fort Collins. You know, they had a small brewery at the time. It was, you know, employee owned. It was, you know, it was a cool place to work. It was rated as one of the top places to work in the U.S., I think. I don't know what, I don't know if that could have been made up. (laughs) But either way, I'm like, you know what? That's what I want to do. You know, I want, I don't want to build this and sell it. I want to, you know, you know, I want to make a job, you know, and have, you know, do something that I'm passionate about. Um, And then I also had the, the other fortunate event of uh, when I was still naive and just starting Alex and Andrew with busy Mm -hmm. started man started brewing out of the facility. And I saw their pain of how they were dealing with, (laughs) they brought on investors and through the years I, I stayed in contact with them, you know, off and on. And I'm like, Oh man, I, I, that does that's that doesn't sound good to me. That I just I, I like just I just had Alex on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, I listened to it. And, and it reminded me. And you go the uh, it's it's an t- entirely different ball game. The yeah. things uh, that he's thinking about on a monthly, quarterly, and on the podcast, he laid out literally like his daily plans as he goes into these investing cycles. And you go, it's obviously their ceiling is going to be much much higher because of the growth they're seeing and the risks they're taking. Right. Uh, but also you start to see the flip side of that is the logistical pains as you're growing, as you're kind of going through this explosive periods of growth and taking on investors that have expectations. Right. And you even heard him kind of work around in a very smart way of like, here's how you can kind of manage expectations or bring on investors that are hopefully on the same page. But at the end of the day, if someone's putting a, Pretty you know, significant sum of money, of money yeah. into your business, they're not going to sit back and be, oh, however it goes, that's you know, that's right. business. There's right. going to be certain expectations. Yeah, they're investing in it for a reason. Yeah. So, <clears throat> as a result, I've just you know, I've had help throughout the years, um, but I've not you know, we've it's been a a targeted effort not to bring in uh, venture capitalism, you know, or uh, investors that aren't, you know, on a large scale that mm-hmm. would have influence over how the business is managed and driven. Um, might be the right call, might not be. Uh, <laughs> you know, and then we had, right when we were hitting stride, COVID came along and all the accounts, you know, we had a lot of, you know, kind of going back to the beginning, I realized pretty quickly that I did not, uh, you know, the level of effort required to get into retail was not uh, not compensatory to the amount of time that you spend right. working with that. And, you know, we'd have, so I'm like, well, you know, breweries would would love to have this in here. I think once they understood, and at the time, you know, not a lot of, I still always got the question of what is kombucha? You know, what, and you go to a brewery and they're like, eh, you know, I, I don't think so. <clears throat> but, you know, we had one, I think our, one of our first breweries was imminent down in Northfield. And as soon as I saw that they were selling more 
kombucha than all 36 Lunds and Byerleys together. I'm like, <laughs> okay, uh, this made my, so then I really shifted focus to, you know, get into more of, you know, breweries, coffee shops, some of the off retail stuff. The issue with that is there's no distribution for it. So yeah. it's all self-distribution. Uh, and it's, so as a result, everything's fairly local. Um, but that was, that was a huge shift for us. I'm like, okay, this is where, this is the space I would let, that I like being in. Uh, and then COVID hit and all that went away. Yeah. So, uh, so now we're, you know, we're starting to get back and, um, you know, get into those, that side of the business growing up again. As things came back, are you seeing the same customers that were ordering? Are you seeing most of them come back or has it kind of shifted the, you know, the buying <coughs> patterns that you were seeing shifted. since COVID? It did. Yeah, it's a different, um, the breweries are still good. We, we had a lot of corporate accounts too. Mm. Um, it's like Best Buy and yeah. Target. We were, we were headed on that path with Colbert that we're starting to yeah. see office traction. We're yep. going, oh, this is actually a nice channel. Yeah. Office space, like the shared office spaces. Like yeah. The, um, and some of those came back and some of them didn't. Uh, we're on tap for like the Vikings at the training center. I was really happy to see them come back because that's just a fun account to have. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's it's come back mostly, but it's a different you know, it's a shift. Yeah. Um, I, I, we, we had office accounts that are going through yeah. 10, 15 gallons a week of cold brew. And now it's one every few weeks right. or five gallons, you know, one five gallon right. every few weeks. And it's like, even if places are back <clears throat> open, it doesn't seem like anyone's back to the traditional model of no. ev every person in every day that it's a blended model. And then most places, it's just seems completely flexible, right. which, you know, that's a whole debate for itself that I, if you bring up with somebody that works in an office will probably lead to a heated debate. But on the business side, you go, yeah. well, if they're in the office 20% of the time, obviously our business with them just dropped by like 80%. Right. And then it also, when you look at that channel, what it was pre COVID was like, this is a very fascinating channel to pursue. Yeah. There's a lot of upside. It's pretty simple, pretty simple. And yeah. so let's, let's continue to pursue yeah. this. Now it's like if a new office reaches out, I'm, I'm having to like ask questions. How many people do you have? Yeah. How many on average do you have per day? Cause now it's more of a worry. Like, is this going to go, is this going to expire before you're able to finish yeah. it? Or is it going to start to taste bad by the time right. you actually finish this cake? Right. Yeah, and we, I don't have to worry about that as much. Yeah, with kombucha. Kombucha is yeah, pretty, yeah. you know, it's pretty resilient. I've had stuff a year old in a keg, more than that, and it's... Versus cold brew. If there's cold yeah. brew sitting in a line for a year, you're like, the things... This is poison. Post-COVID, <laughs> yeah. post the things that I, yeah. I... So I went through and, like, some... You. There were some places, hey, we unplugged the keg grater when we shut down, and now yeah. we're back. And I go, from 18 months ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. would you mind uh, bringing us a new keg? And I'm like, I'm going to have to do a deep, deep, yeah. you know, all the things I pulled out of taps. The thing, yeah, that was. Things I've pulled out of taps of places that are operating. I know. You know, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things. I, I started doing, you know, for the, you know, if people get a bad pour, they blame it on the the product, mm -hmm. not the equipment. So I started doing like, Hey, we'll come in, you know, part of the service we'll do is we'll come in and flush your lines every, you know, few months. And then I quickly realized that, you know, that's, that's not sustainable for us. Um, so I try to get folks to clean their, their tap lines, but you know, in the end we just 
do it and you know, yeah. charge back. But that's and we do the same. And you go, that's another thing that you go, that's not really scalable to say, hey, we'll just come by and clean it. Right. And then you go, okay, we'll charge for it. But then their expectation is, hey, if you're charging me for it, I need it this time. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, now we're in the cleaning business. Right. I will say Minnesota standards, and I think it actually might be law about cleaning lines at like bars, restaurants, uh, like commercial spaces yeah. are like pretty rigid. Like every couple right. weeks, I, draft lines seem to be here really good. But yeah. when I was selling in Illinois and Missouri, they don't have those laws. It's just up to the establishment. And you see some kitchens or keg rooms that the lines and the taps. Yeah. Nasty. It is like it sticks with you. Yeah, and you go right. because you and what sucks is usually you realize it because you're like, Go and taste test and be like, okay, this is tasting really funky. Yeah. And then you're like, well, this keg is almost brand new. Right. And then you go through the system. You put a napkin up the tap, uh, up the <laughs> up the spout. Yeah. And you pull it out and something is pulling yeah. along with it. Yeah. And you realize people are drinking out of that. That's kind of like the office side. You really have to be it worried is. with cold brew. Less worried with uh, kombucha. Well, breweries do good with their cleaning. Yeah, breweries are on point. Anything, you know, any office space, you really got to, and, you know, grocery stores, you know, we had a few few co-ops that have uh, kegerators that we've provided, and then those you got to stay on top of, too. Yeah, it's, and you can't really blame them, because... No, they don't know. uh, It's, with kegerators especially, it's like... To you or I at this point, super familiar with them. It seems really simple. Here's how you clean it. Here's how you maintain it. Here's how you make alterations to be able to get it pouring properly. But unless you've had experience with that, K-Grader doesn't just come naturally that th- these are how you do all these things. Yeah, it's, it's very intimidating, I think, for folks to, like, I'll have them call or, or send a, you know, pictures on how to change a keg. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> or, you know. They're, Which again, the first time I changed a keg in college, yeah. I was like, "This is terrifying." It's terrifying, and it's gonna explode. There's a high risk of embarrassment, <laughs> and if you're at work, when I was a bar back, this happened once or twice. It it, it sprays on you, and right. you're like, "Great, now I'm covered in right. sticky, smelly liquid for the rest yep, of this shift, of and day. I look like a mess." <laughs> but I, so I'm curious. Post COVID, so things start to come back. The brewery customers start to come yeah. back. Offices don't come back in the same way. How has the business changed since then? Because it's impressive seeing the amount of stores you're in. And I'm curious, uh, during COVID or before COVID, how, how you got into all these stores from that first visit to Valley Natural Foods to now the hundreds of stores you're in now? Yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> you know, a lot of it was was through help with the distributor. So then I got, you know, after Co-op Partners. So Co-op Partners covers all the co-op natural food markets and stuff like that. And then we got into market distributing after I had gone to Kowalski's and pitched it to them, they brought it in and then I could go to Mark and say, Hey, we're in Kowalski's, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then that, that kind of grew from there. And then, <clears throat> you know, it was a lot of the, still a lot of the go into the stores, talk to the folks, you, you know, have them bring it in. And, you know, but then I, you know, I started diverting my effort, you know, cause I'm only one, it's, it was me and one other guy yeah. for for most of the time pre-COVID. I can relate. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you know how, like, so I'm like, okay, my return on investment time is better spent going to a brewery or going to, you know, so I didn't focus too much on the retail side. I'd like to get back to that, too. I'd like to grow that, um, that side a bit more. Uh, 
yeah, it's it's so varied. I, I I know it sounds like I'm dodgy on that question, but it's really yeah. it's different for every account. Um, I mean, we've had customers that I'll get the monthly report from the distributor. We work with Market Two, and you're like, yeah. oh, cool. Oh, I guess we are sold there now. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a lot of what, or you'll get a text from a friend be like, Oh, nice. And you're like, where is that? Right. <laughs> yeah. And I would say a lot of, you know, so that was the other thing is I would spend a lot of time on retail accounts getting no traction. And then someone, you know, some a, a retail account would, would pull it from the distributor without any work from me. So yeah, <laughs> it's, it's that balance. And this goes all the way back to the beer days, but you realize that it's like, your advantage as the founder and owner or just even a sales rep for this company is that you have expertise on the product. You know yeah. which ones are the best sellers. You know which ones taste the best. You know the story behind it, but you have zero relationship with any buyer to any right. retailer. So even if you get a meeting with them, they're taking everything you say with a grain of salt because they're like, obviously, the per this person has a heavy bias that this this is a good product. Right. A distributor could literally be like, yeah, this was this is doing pretty well. You should bring it in. Yeah. And a lot of buyers will be like, it's doing pretty well. Where? And, right. they'll, and they'll list five <laughs> stores and go, all right, we'll bring it in. Yeah. And you start to realize that's like, okay, that's where the distributor has this major advantage yeah. is the, the good reps have great relationships with the buyers, have recommended things that have been good in the past. Right. And they built this trust. Then. Yep. So all it takes for a distributor sometimes, and <laughs> any distributor rep that might be listening to this, I, <laughs> I know, I know the struggle. But in some cases, when you have a great relationship with a buyer, you can be like, this has been working well yeah. other places. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think that relation, the relationship you have with your uh, distributors is a very valuable one, uh, you know, because just as you said, they, they, they have the contacts. They can, you know, in, in some instances, just talk to one person and say, hey, you should bring this in. Yeah. And they say, yeah, you know, we got X number of stores. We'll bring it in. To, we'll try it here first and then uh, bring it into the others. Or just even being able to put you in contact with the buyer so that the buyer right. goes, oh, okay, I know where I've met this person yep. from now. It's through the distributor yeah. versus cold calling. They're like, who are you? Who do you distribute? Yeah. Who's your rep? And you're, there's going to be information you don't know. And they're like, unless everything lines up, right. I don't want to do it. Versus it's such a fine line. Having that knowledge that all I need to do is, oh, email this person. I can get my first order in. It's, yeah. that's, it's all set up. I don't have to worry about UPC. I don't anything. have to is everything this person saying right? Yeah. Is the UPC in the system? Is it, will it get set up easily? But that is like one of the major advantages of the distributor along with pains it brings in terms of like, you know, I just got a bill back for like $1,500 right. and I'm like, what is this for? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Hey, we took $1,500 off this invoice for a flyer. What, right. What flyer? Well, and then I had one. Just, well, flyer is a term for all marketing expenses. I go, what marketing? <laughs> right. Well, and then, you know, I had, I, I, I don't know if they'd listen or not, but, you know, I have a distributor who's who's like, hey, if we pay, uh, I had I, like a net 30 terms yeah. on there. And they they made the decision like, hey, if we pay within the first 10 days, we take 10% off. Yeah. And I'm like, well, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm already in the, the contract. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so then I'm like, do I bump up my prices by 10% to account for this. So, and that's part of the naivety of being a, you know, a startup business. Yeah. I'm like, Hey, I'm going to get, I'm going to be bare bones on this. Cause I want to be competitive in, in the, you know, in this category. Yeah. Uh, and then you find out all this other stuff where it gets tacked on after the fact. And you're like, well, shit, I was already at the, <laughs> I was yeah. already at the bottom. Yeah. And that brings it all for full circle back to like, Oh, you're in hundreds of stores. You must be killing you. Yep. Like, the CPG only or retail only strategy is a yeah. high, high volume game. And that is why you see, I think, a lot of CPG retail brands 
feel this pressure. Be like, yeah. we have to be regional. Yeah. If if we stay only local, we can't pay ourselves. Yeah. And that and that's where it's like having you know kombucha on tap is a unique opportunity. Whereas for like other types of products, trying to build a wholesale business is a little bit more difficult. Yeah. When I think the the breweries specifically are, it's just such a cool space to be in for us. And then, you know, to see that grow um, and have those breweries understand that this is a valuable product. Our customers do want it. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that, I don't know. It's, it's so much of a, a small business is just being able to function in complete chaos <laughs> and not lose your shit. Just managing chaos. Just manage chaos. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you, you're literally a leaf in a raging river. And if you try and fight it, uh, you're going to, you know, you're not going to make it. So you just got to roll with it, uh, look for opportunities, shift where you can shift, at least at my level. This is how I'm looking at it, yeah. you know. And, and that was the whole reason for bringing on, you know, we had, a, had to make a decision a while back. You know, do we, you know, they stopped making our, we used to be in bottles. They stopped making our bottle. I had a, I had a bottling line that was specific to those bottles, which it could change. Um, but I always wanted to be in cans. So over COVID, I'm like, oh, we'll do cans. Uh, thinking it's going to be fairly easy to to find a co-packer. It's not. Uh, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, the, our, our our mutual friend and your business partner was like, oh, shit, bring it in here. And uh, so started doing that and they got swamped. So then I'd be like four weeks with no product. So I'm like, okay, I got to either spend a hundred grand on a, on a canning line or the business is not going to make it. Um, so it's decisions like that where you gotta like are not for the faint of heart. Yeah. <laughs> like, but but like, this, this is a great example is you have to make this heavy, heavy investment into a yeah. canning line, but all of a sudden now you go, well, now we've got like a full manufacturing facility here. Yeah. And it sounds like that's brought up new opportunities outside of kind of the bootlegger kombucha space. Yeah. I think it was one of those things where you got to recognize when there's like a, a gap uh, in an industry, you know, yeah. for us, it was like, okay, if, if I can't get my stuff canned, there's other brands out there that are having a problem. Cause you, it, there was no in between there was, okay, you, you're doing it yourself or, uh, you're going to go in, you know, 900 gallon batches. Yeah. And this is a consistent theme in food and beverage in general. You're either like a small producer yeah. doing farmer's markets and maybe in a few stores yeah, or you build out your own facility to be able to take, take the next small step, or you have to go to a co-packer. It's like, we have a 10,000 minimum right. unit order. And you're like, well, I don't have right. 50 grand to spend on this order <laughs> exactly. and, and keep this in my warehouse for four months or right. whatever it may be. Yeah. So that, then, so I was like, okay, if I can figure out how to get this line in here without bringing on, you know, investors or, or whatnot, uh, then I'm 95% confident that it will be successful. Um, and so, you know, you figure out how to do it yeah. and, and you bring it in. And now, you know, we're, I, I expected a little bit of, you know, cause I'm still working a, an engineering job halftime that I do in the morning and then running bootlegger. And then, you know, I've, I thought, you know, once I start this co-packing endeavor, you know, it's not going to come on all at once. So, you know, I need <laughs> one contract basically. I need to be doing around one run a week to justify leaving my, engineering job again and going full-time for that. Uh, so then I, I had one, one account in the, in the works. I'm like, okay, 
I'm going to start, I'm going to start my departure. And then it went from one account to completely full within, I'm not kidding, within two weeks. And that's the, but having that mindset of most people, if they're going out and being like, I can't find a co-pack, you're like, all right, we'll buy this canning line. And then now we've got this, but to have that insight to go, well, if it's this hard for me, yeah, it's gotta be this hard for everybody that's canning any beverage. That's not at a massive, yeah. massive scale. This has to be this. And then even when you look at big Watt and their, their, their co-packing abilities as you go, well, shoot, look at the business they've built. They have an incredible co-packing business because they're able to co-pack at a smaller scale than like the, yeah. the even larger brands. So they filled this, so when you look at this category, you're going, okay, so they're having success co-packing because they can do it at this big of a scale, but there's still all this room in between the yeah. small local producer and being able to be at that ability that you go, well, the reason I'm not able to get an order for four weeks is because they have so many orders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a fairly easy decision and I felt, you know, I felt pretty confident, you know, like I said, I was 95% confident that it would be a successful, you know plug and play type. Yeah. <laughs> Not to oversimplify it, but as far as like, if you provide the service, it will fill up. Um, and then we, you know, we, we, you know, the timing with that actually ended up being really fortunate with the uh, clarification of the farm bill in allowing, you know, clarifying that a 3% THC level is five milligrams in a serving mm -hmm. basically. After that happened, you know, it, it coincided with as we brought the line on, then I had, you know, all we're doing now, most of what we're doing are THC beverages, which is also like, that's cool. <laughs> it's, a, but you know, it is a bit like the wild west right now. So yeah. we're, you know, it's, uh, but it's exciting. It's an exciting, you know, it's a new business on top of new businesses. And how did you find the people that are now producing at your facility? Cause did you just turn on the neon that says we co-pack now and then people were lining that. up? <laughs> I did not even do that. I, I was in the middle of working on the website to get this started when I started getting my first calls of like, hey, I heard you have a canning line. Can you do this? <laughs> All of it has literally been word of mouth. That's, usually, that's a very good sign when you've made a decision right. and lead generation is doing its own job without even trying. That yeah. means that the demand is so high that people have gone off the beaten path because we'll have this happen that they'll contact, hey, do you, mm -hmm. I, I heard you roast coffee. Can you do this? Can and you? we go, no, we can't. Like, we can't roast almonds. I'm sorry. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's like people looking for these services that don't really exist on, a, on the scale they need. Right. I think... I, I think I do have, you know, I created my Google business uh, profile, but I don't believe anything has come through that. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. It's one of those, I don't know if every entrepreneur has it, but I definitely have that, for me, that golden hour of like 3 to 4 a.m. where I my mind wakes up and is like, hey, remember all that shit you forgot to do? Remember that thing? That, you know, so the website's oh, been on there. My, like, mine's right when I go to bed, yeah. <laughs> which has really been affecting I, my sleep. Yeah, yeah. Mine... <laughs> I fall asleep out of sheer exhaustion within like <laughs> two minutes. Uh, and then I wake up at three or four and then I lay there until I get up, uh, you know, just rolling over. I, you know, that your, your unconscious or mind that is constantly just peppering you with all this stuff. I'm like, I got it. I can't do anything to solve this right now. So shut up and let me go back to sleep. <laughs> and I have this discussion with my brain. I like, like who's in control here? I should be. You know, let me, let me think. But, you know, the point being is like, I, I started to get, you know, my, my, uh, 
I don't even know what to call it, but you know, my, my nervous brain, my 3 a.m. brain is, is on me for not having a website fully up and running. But then my rationale is like, hey, I've got the business in here already, so just shut up and let me. <laughs> that is an interesting way to put it because sometimes I go, oh, I should be doing this. Social, social media is a great example. Yeah. People are like, I, I should be posting every day. I should be hiring a content creator. I should be mm-hmm. taking professional photographies for the posts are gorgeous. And you're like, how much business is coming from social media? Right. And you're like, well, I mean, if I look at my website and do some tracking, you know, it's a pretty small percentage compared yeah. to these other things. How much are you feeling like you should be doing these other things? Well, those are just things that are working. So I don't, and you're like, what if you shifted it and go, instead of feeling the need to post every day and have perfect professional pictures, what if the things that are working, you place more focus mm-hmm. on those and figure out why those are working yeah. and you start to, but it's so easy to fall into that trap in this industry because you see brands that are killing it mm-hmm. and the things they're doing on social media and the things that other companies are doing that you're like, Oh, I should be doing that. And I look at that and go, well, if you're basing your strategy off what other people who are having more success than you are doing, there's two ways to look at it. One, they're having success, so I should be doing that. Or two, they're more successful than you doing it already. So do you think they're, you're going to start beating them at their right. own game at something they're better at you then? Well, and it's all, you know, you don't know the whole story behind it either. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, it, it, it hit home. I've said it before, but, you know, having listened to the Alex's podcast too is – you know, the last one you guys did, uh, you know, you can have a business that's, you know, making a hundred million dollars and netting a million dollars, <laughs> or you can have a business that, and please, this is just for sake of math. I'm not making a million dollars, but you could have a business that's making $10 million and netting a million dollars. Uh, you know, the level of oversight and headache and staff and all this, you know, all that stuff you're still netting the same amount with less headache. And that's how I kind of look at it. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think there's two different mindsets. when Because I've, I've thought about that same thing is if someone came to me today and said, mm-hmm. we're just going to plop you in someone else's shoes, uh, two, you have two options. One is this $10 million company that does a million net profit yeah. or $100 million and does a million net profit. And then there's kind of two mindsets to it. I think the first one, if it's $10 million with a million dollars net profit, you go, well, if it's something I love doing and I yeah. want to keep doing it, that's exactly. the obvious choice. Right. But if I'm somebody that wants to sell this sell business, it. then there's someone with billions of dollars right. looking at this $100 million company going, we could buy this slash right. employees. We could slash uh, costs. We could probably cut back on ingredient quality and still create a palatable product. Right. And we could get this into a $20 million profit a year by just coming in and adding our logistical efficiency. And then I go, well, yeah, you'd be wealthy, but how much of the equity do you have at that point? And then also like, how bad would you feel that you sell the company and then everybody that who like, loves it. everybody who's a part of this company might yeah. suffer because of the company afterwards. And then the flip side is like, yeah, the product might suffer. And so the people who actually love the product suffer in a way, but yeah. they, they don't really like suffer because They'll just they'll not just move, buy, on, yeah, they'll just, move on. And and so there's kind of two ways to look at it is like that massive payout yeah. or having a business that's making that same amount of profit where everybody involves probably a lot happier. Right. And it, because to get to a hundred million to me seems like it has to be a pretty aggressive way yeah. of going about business. Yeah. Well, and you know, I think that's uh, 
part of the mindset that you have to, you know, you have to know what you want close going in. Like, do I want a job? Do I want to build something that I care about and keep it and just, you know, have it as, as a, you know, a project that I enjoy doing, or do I want to build it as quick as possible, sell it, move on to something else? Both of those are viable options. Uh, I would say the majority of businesses out there are the second. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when I talk to uh, investors and advisors and stuff like that about my view on it, all of them are like, don't say that. Don't say that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, that's the truth. Yeah. Uh, And you just have to view it through their lens. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. In their experience, the things that have brought them wealth and the things that have been successful for them is not someone... And actually, Jim Cook at Sam Adams is a great example of this. So I, that's why I worked for for four years. Sure. Despite being a billion dollar company, he still owns fifty one percent, so that he doesn't have to answer to shareholders. And so you go, that is again that balance where it's right. super super aggressive, but while still maintaining great products. But then also you do see like truly is a great example. Yeah. Sp- Spike Seltzers are blowing up. We're going to start selling that now. And that, that's what the kind of business decisions that make them into these billion dollar yeah. companies. Well, and that's not to say that things won't change going forward. It's been such a screwy last, you know, starting in 2016. So I had three years of growth before the bottom fell out with COVID. Yeah. So it's, you know, these are also the stories that I have to tell myself to keep from just going insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and, and who knows how over the next, I, I do, view bootlegger as, as a, uh, a business and a product that I want to maintain control of. And it's, you know, it's not like, you know, it's similar to coffee in, in that, you know, it's not, you throw some ingredients together and whip out a product. It's, there's some skill involved, there's knowledge involved, there's time involved, and it's not something that you can just sell the recipe and be like, you know, anyone can make this. Um, so I think, you know, I think you have to have that mentality a little bit to, you know, you have to have the need and the desire to, to keep a quality product out there. Um, and that doesn't mean not scaling. To, yeah. And that's, I mean, also just scaling in the right way. And from a pure business sense, you go, that's the smartest strategy. Like yeah, the second quality starts to slip, people notice. Yeah, people, yeah, they don't, they don't need justification. They don't care about your backstory. Yeah. Uh, they pick it up and it sucks. They're going to move on and grab something else. And yeah. It's like on both sides, you could have the best story, right. have a bad product and people go, I'm good on this, even though it's the greatest story ever. Right. And if something's really great, they probably care less about the story. If they just go, oh, I just love it. Right. <laughs> There's some people that have probably sketchy stories that you're like, right. but it's so good. It's good. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, th- I feel like, you know, everyone thinks their baby is cute. I think that we have some of the best kombucha in the U.S., uh, but it still doesn't, that doesn't turn into sales. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's finding, I'm still learning, you know, learning where, where that spot is. Yeah. Um, but the addition of the, the co-packing helps me move bootlegger more in the direction that I want to move it. You know, I keep it in the, at the scale and, and growth that I want it to be because it's not the main source of income for the business. And it's like, it's a nice safety net too, or like yeah. foundation that you go, okay, so this business is actually going to help grow this business. Right. Like Onyx Coffee, which is one of the, like, if you're a specialty coffee person, you probably look yep. at them and be like, they're probably overall doing it the best. And they started as anonymous coffee roasters. And all they did was private label roasting yeah. for cafes in Arkansas. And they grew this really nice private label business 
And then they started Onyx. Right. And I go, that's so smart because now <laughs> it's like you've got this guarantee, not guarantee, but you've got this uh, kind of dependable stream of income coming in. You can really accurately predict here's the revenue we're going to bring in profit and then how much and then just taking all of that profit and investing it into the next level up. Right. You're like that versus like now people reach out. I was like, can we private label? And I'm like, well, we just don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I would, I don't know fully the Onyx story, but I do, I pretty much guarantee they didn't go into the business with that in mind. They saw an opportunity and they shifted and you know, now they are where they're at. <laughs> yeah. And, and they're, you know, they've been around for 10 years, sure. uh, which gave me mixed feelings when I saw they were celebrating their 10, 10 year anniversary. Cause I was like, Oh, they've been around for a while. And then I was like, we're coming up on five years. Right. They've right. only been around twice as yeah. long as us. We should be doing way more. But also you think about, it, they started in Arkansas. They started Onyx 10 years ago in Arkansas. They were so far ahead, far ahead of the trends yeah. of specialty coffee. Yep. And that's another major component too. Sure. But that, that ability to be able to co-pack in the bootlegger facility just is this nice avenue that is like, doesn't have all, it has stresses, but it doesn't have the same stress as when it's your own brand or right. am I reading that correctly? No, it's, it's for me, it is a shift in doing the things that I like doing. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about it at the beginning where, you know, when you start a business, you got to do everything, you know, you're doing the manufacturing, the marketing, the, you know, all the things, the bookkeeping, um, you know, doing the co-packing helps me do the things that I like to do, which is, you know, I love working with startup businesses. It's an exciting time for them, which makes it exciting for me. Um, I'm doing the brewing and the, you know, I don't have to deal with, uh, sales or, you know, all the headache that comes with trying to get into the retail stuff that that's, they get to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Granted, it, it feels like it's been a year already and it's literally been, I think four or five, four weeks. <laughs> so, but I feel like I've, you know, aged in that, uh, you know, the business chops, <laughs> you know, uh, a lot, you know, a lot more in the last few weeks. Yeah. Know? But I imagine in that space or just working with startup founders in general, you can be like, I haven't done this before, but we'll find a way to make it work. And they have the same mindset that yeah. it's like, we'll find a way to make this work. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's also, you know, I'm able to leverage my experience with the startup to, you know, if I see them, you know, heading towards a cliff, I'm going to be like, Hey, you know, you need to, you know, you need to consider these things. Yeah. You know, you're trying to get into a uh, distribution, you know, you can't be, you know, pushing your, above wholesale price to them. Cause that's not, you know, just little things that, that I've stumbled on that I may, you know, able to help them with. That's the exciting part too, is just, you know, being able to convey some knowledge and, uh, just work with them through, I, I, I do feel like the, uh, you know, the excitement that they have helps me be excited about. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, this podcast stuff. is a great example of this. Like half the reason I do it is I go, it's such a nice feeling to one sometimes excitement, but then two also be like, oh, we're all we're all doing, we're all we're all in this chaos. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. I was so I just you know, I I hadn't you know I don't have a ton of time to listen to to pod, podcasts, but I recently started listening to this, and I'm like, this is great. You know, this is a good you know anyone that's not anyone, you know, people outside of small business might or business in general business ownership you know, may not fully 
identify this, but the people that are in business and have their own business, this stuff is like, it's, it's therapeutic. This, this podcast is the podcast version of your co-packing operation. Because like when I was listening to podcasts, it was like, you know, how I built this and it's all billion, hundred million to a billion dollar companies. And you're like, and they're telling you stories from 20 years ago and you're like, yeah, this doesn't relate this the at same all. Word. And they go, this thing called Facebook came along and I found that you could advertise. And I'm right. like, <laughs> it doesn't, these don't apply anymore. And so I was like, it'd be fun to shift the focus of yeah. this podcast to that. It's like yeah. people who are in the thick of it, people who have successful businesses on a smaller scale and to hear the stories. So yeah. I think that's about as good as any place to finish this one up. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate you coming on and I will uh, end it like I do every other episode and say, have a nice day.